Well, it's lovely to be here with you today. And uh, while Ray is on leave, we're continuing on uh, through the book of Matthew, the gospel message from chapter 13 today and the first 23 verses. Um, And please follow through your Bibles as we go. Um, But I will not be taking this verse by verse. It's a, a, a parable that I think we're... Uh, very familiar with. Uh, It's been preached from here four times before, um, at least in my memory, or a look up on sermon audio, and uh, twice of those from Ray. It's also a word taught and explained by the best teacher in the world. So he's given us the explanation and we've had it read for us today. Um, We've also been introduced really well to something that we need to see straight up, that this parable is about the word of the kingdom. Look at verse 19 in the explanation to uh, to the disciples. He says here the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom... And then Jesus goes on to explain the different soils, the different ways the word is heard. So it needs to be said that the preaching and the hearing of the word of the kingdom is central to what we are about as a church. It's essential to the action of this parable and it's essential to us as we have the gospel and we go out. So we need to give this some attention and I'll do this before we come back to the parable. And I'll do that through a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 4, which the Tuesday night group are really familiar with by now. Um, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is powerful. And we need to see the nature of that power, particularly as we see the sovereign actions of the king. So Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We don't go out in any other power. And I think I counted about 15 times we used the word word to explain what's going on when we bring the scripture and to hear the word and hearing is incredibly important. The word of God, the ministry of the word or similar phrases can become Christian lingo. And we don't think much about what we're saying. So what is the word? And a better question is... Who is the Word? John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 of chapter 1 of John, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word speaks, 
the beginning of Hebrews, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by son. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened their eyes to everything that was written about him. God speaks and has now finally spoken to us by son. So as we said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to everything in the parable and everything we should be about and live in. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What a terrible place it would be without that word. So Jesus is the only man, the son of God, the son of man, who lived every heartbeat according to his father's word. Even in the deepest trial, testing and temptation. After 40 days in the wilderness, he doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And such was the closeness of the Father to the Son. He taught us to pray, Father. So it's with this understanding that we come to this parable of the sower. And clearly we have to ask, who is the sower and what's the seed? Clearly Jesus, the King of the Jews, had been going about teaching, performing miracles, healing, releasing from demons and even forgiving sins. He's the sower, if you like. He's the doer in the parable. He's the one that's acting. And we could further note and should note that in the power of the Holy Spirit, although we preach, teach and share the gospel, he remains the sower. He is the doer and we are his means. So the sower in the parable is Jesus, the word. What then is the seed? What takes root and grows? What's the word of the kingdom that grows? Now, we've seen that Jesus is the word and we can also note that in the centre of this passage, um, you can have a look, there's a prophecy there in verse 14 from Isaiah, and we could have taken that as another reading today, but there's something else I want us to see. But in that prophecy, he's talking about, from Isaiah 6, the hearing of the word and the not hearing of the word, and the judgment that came on Israel for not hearing that word the nation that was built into a great oak, cut down with their eyes closed by God and no longer hearing, a stump. And at the end of Isaiah 6, you hear, in that forsakenness of Israel, they were not forsaken. There's a seed buried in that stump. And that seed is Christ. And that's what's being sown. And that's what grows. The holy seed out of that stump, he will come. And Messiah has come. He's the word of God, both sower and seed in the parable. And with that, you have the keys, as it were, 
to unlock the meaning and hear what Jesus is teaching. So let's pray um, with that in mind. Father, Father, as we seek to hear this parable, I pray that you will open our ears and eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son, and what he, our King, has accomplished. I pray that you'd grant us some understanding of your loving kindness and at what it cost you to bring us to a place of hearing and loving you and your word to us. We pray that we would hear, that you would give us ears to hear what was taught to the disciples and that this would prepare us also for proclaiming the gospel. And we pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ who has freed us, loved us, freed us from our non-hearing by his blood. Amen. So as I said, we should be familiar with the parable, having heard it at least four times and committed it all to memory. Um, sometimes we struggle with what we hear last week, don't we? Which is why we need to make the word dwell richly. So I'll be spending less time explaining what the parable means, but we'll do that. I want us to hear what's been taught to the disciples in amongst this what they've learned, what they have been taught, and what that might mean for us as we share the gospel, either preaching, teaching, or getting alongside and giving a word to, to someone on the sports field or in our workplaces or wherever we come and share. And I want us to hear and understand or remind, to be reminded of what it cost us cost to bring us to a place of hearing and loving. So, in Matthew 13, um, in the lead up to that, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a strong and increasing opposition to Jesus' ministry. The scribes and Pharisees had already decided that Jesus was not from God and that he definitely was not the Christ. No word, no sign, no wonder could change their heart. Their ears and eyes were blocked and closed and they even went as far as accusing him as operating from the power of the prince of demons. Now recall from last week that their subsequent demanding of a sign immediately, give us a sign. And this request was refused by Christ and any sign immediately given to them would not have changed their heart, hard hearts and would have liked on any other occasion given them ammunition to come back at him and increase opposition. But he did give them a sign, didn't he? As Nat reminded us last week, the sign of Jonah, a sign that pointed to Christ, a sign that pointed to after being in the belly of the whale for three days, there would be repentance to the preaching of the word. So the opposition to Christ's ministry marked also a new phase in his ministry, the way he taught 
and he started teaching in parables. Look at verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Like, they must have been confused. We didn't understand. Why are you teaching them that way? This is different. You were speaking plainly and now you're not. Now, why Jesus speaks in parables and Jesus' answer is the subject of many books and many discussions, some of them heated around sovereignty and very cold and hard, but we just need to see the scripture and hear it and believe it. It's clear that Jesus spoke in parables at that time for two reasons. Firstly, to hide and secondly, to reveal. He was to hide the secrets of the kingdom of heaven from the crowds. Not particularly logical in our thinking of preaching and teaching. And secondly, to reveal them to his chosen disciples. And I, do, I think that the revelation there is preparing them for life in the kingdom of God. If you like, he's training them for those who would later go out proclaiming the kingdom, preaching the gospel. It's very important. So we see the parables of the king of the Jews reigning in judgment. He is the king and God is sovereign and the king comes with sovereign action, exercising his just and holy right to reign. We have to hear that. We have to see that in the quote. Consider verse 12. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Who's doing the taking away? Who's doing the giving? Jesus goes on, as we said, to quote from Isaiah 6, where there's judgment pronounced on God's people for rejecting his word and choosing to pursue idols and other words time and time again. They were dulled to God's word to come back to him. And the penalty for that hardness was for God to, in Isaiah's word, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they should see. And their ears hear and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. God's action for not hearing, God's judgment was not hearing. To take them to a place where they couldn't hear. I mean, if to live is to hear God's word, there's a forsakenness in that hearing, in that lostness. There's a judgment there. So in this sovereignty, the sovereign action of God, I don't want to miss the severity of that judgment, what it actually means. What does it mean for God's chosen people to stop hearing his word? What does it mean for us if we stop hearing his word? 
So without the word of God, our primary relationship from which every relationship has been created is cut off. Imagine the ones we love giving us the silent treatment. Continually not hearing and going their own way. I'm not just talking about teenagers. I'm talking about something stronger than that. And this is the creator, the one who loves them, creating a people. And that not hearing, what does that do? And contrast this to the life of the Son of Man. Not exercising superpowers as God, but the man whose every thought and every deed was in rich communion with the Father in accordance with his will and filled with his spirit. So we see hearing and not hearing clearly. Now, I want to leave the question of why Jesus spoke to the disciples, spoke to the crowds, um, or why he spoke in parables there. Um, He went on to um, explain that uh, in uh, verse 18 and following. There's one thing I um, want to say. We took a reading from Romans 9. If you have a bit of a problem with um, the strangeness of God's judgment there and his sovereign action, maybe just continue reading in Romans 9 and work through that. But I'm not going to do that today. You might take me out and stone me. Um, Or you um, might try to escape before the bikes leave. So verse 18, hear the parable of the sower. As I said, Jesus explains it and one commentator wrote, in summary, the word of God is proclaimed and causes a division amongst those who hear. God's people receive the word, understand it, and obediently fulfil it. Others fail to listen because of a hardened heart. A hardened heart. A basic superficiality. It hasn't gone deep. They've just had milk. They haven't gone on to solid food. Or a vested interest in riches and possessions. Well, there's content for many sermons. And sometimes it can be around commitment. Don't harden your heart. Work harder at making it soft. Like, how does that happen? You ever tried to change someone's heart? Tried to change your own? Don't let possessions or cares in this world swamp your treasure. Well, what is our treasure? So I'm sure that these instructions and warnings are good to hear and the disciples needed to hear them as warnings. But isn't it better to focus on the antidote to these things? Paying close attention to the word, hearing the word. 
understanding scripture, reading Coro News and reading the passage before we get here. Is that a bit of a hard word? Sorry. I know someone wrote too much this week. Understanding scripture individually together, mining the truth about him, singing the truth together to our hearts, as one, some, someone quite aptly called it, and obeying what we hear. So we could go on and talk more about the soil types, but I think there are other things that I want us to see that the disciples were being taught. There's three of them. First, don't be surprised when the word causes division, when it's plucked away or when it doesn't take root and last or when it becomes choked by the world. If this happened to Jesus Christ as he taught, the best teacher and preacher ever, isn't the re- that a reflection? It's not a reflection on the power of the word, it's a reflection on the soils. There remains a responsibility for us to hear. There remains a responsibility for us to hear and understand. And more so given that Jesus Christ is God's final word to us. Now, that the word causes division and that it doesn't stick necessarily, doesn't grow. Is that our experience as we've shared Christ? By family, friends and colleagues, can it be met with hard rejection, shallow acceptance or become crowded out with the things of the world? Now we should never think, well, I'm going to try something different. We should never allow, stop from allowing the sower, the seed, the doer and his word acting in us as his means. Do we think that we could write another word that would change their hearts? Do we think that of ourselves we can make a strategy that will actually turn people around? Some evidence-based thing that we've got that Jesus didn't have in his day. That we could be more tactical. We could adapt our preaching to some other more easily accepted gospel. bit tongue-in-cheek, but maybe good coffee and professional lighting systems and better sound. We could fill these seats, couldn't we? Need a bigger church. Have regular social activities. They'll help the lost see that we're not that strange. Well, actually we are. I mean, really. (laughs) I'm not just talking about me. But the world won't see the kingdom of God unless it's opened through the word remember the gospel is the power to salvation so by all means run programs if that's what you're called to do but in them and the busyness of running programs don't think that you're declaring the gospel don't forget to declare the word don't forget To love, by all means. That's the first thing I think he's teaching the disciples, that their 
going out wouldn't necessarily be received universally. Secondly, on the surface, Jesus' ministry must have seemed to be extremely successful. Large crowds following him around, hanging off every word. Jesus in a boat, sitting down like he's seated in a temple, in a natural amphitheatre, crowds along the bank. Wonderful ministry. How could we replicate that? The parable taught the disciples that popularity is not how to measure the effectiveness of God's word. We've seen missionaries labouring for um, almost generations in very hard soil with very little fruit. But God's word will bring about what it seeks to accomplish. And there we have folk that preach away to very small congregations and they love to hear the word. And we may have large congregations, there may well be large congregations that may love the things that attract a crowd but don't necessarily um, hear or preach the word. But it's not for us to judge the soils. Which is my third point. The seed is spread over the whole land generously. Why so on the path? The rocky ground and amongst thorns. I'm a farmer's son. Makes no sense to me. Why would we throw seed down the creek or up on the rocky ridges? Or on the road that we drove out on? But could we discern the soils? Do we see the rocks? Do we see what the power of the word would do in softening hard hearts? We see the word taking root in prisons, yet cast aside by our wise ones and our leaders. So the disciples were chosen. Matthew, the tax collector, certainly not esteemed by the world. They were chosen as the sower's means by going out to the gospel, not the scribes, the Pharisees and the priests. And these disciples needed to proclaim this word far and wide as they were called to go. So having seen that part of the training of the disciples, and hopefully we've heard that, there are three things I want to draw attention to before we finish. There's a danger... I want us to avoid a word I want us to hear which will help us avoid that danger and a promise to believe. A danger, a word and a promise. Okay? I'm promising to finish in three things. A danger. Preaching and teaching about the world can be wonderfully reasoned, eloquently delivered Technically correct, but cold. Particularly when it comes from matters of election, which we've spoken of, sovereignty, and unreceptive soils. Jesus didn't, and the disciples shouldn't go, oh well, that fell on hard ground and it didn't sow. It explains why 
but it doesn't show us God's holy love. God is holy and is love. Those who do not and will not hear causes him pain. He takes no joy in judgment. So to our shame, we could become so intent on theological accuracy and eloquent preaching that we forget to hear the heart of the Father. Wasn't that a good word? Well, what makes it good is when it's holy and it's love. It's from God. It shows the truth. So let's not do that today. And we also need to see God's love for the lost. And we see that in our second reading, if you wanted to flick over to Romans 9. And I didn't have time to open up everything I wanted to from there, but the first three verses, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For the Apostle Paul, his love for God and his word is everything. To live is Christ and to die is gain, he says. Yet his love for his fellow Israelites who have rejected Christ is such that he would be accursed himself, cut off from hearing the word, so that they, the Jewish nation, could hear and enter the kingdom. Does that sound Christ-like to you? On what we call Palm Sunday, in amongst the fickle adoration of the crowds, welcoming him as king that would soon call out to crucify him. Jesus saw the city and he wept over it. God's chosen people, Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus took no joy on the judgments that were to come on Jerusalem. So that was the danger. Let's not be cold with the sharing of the word or hearing it or its results. So the word that I want to bring is a word from the cross. And we've said, by way of introduction and at repeat, Jesus is the only man whose every breath was taken knowing the presence of God, his Father. He and the Father are one. Every action was in accordance with his Father's word and will. And this familial unity of love from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father and the Spirit is closer than any that we could imagine any created in his image and this family existed from before the beginning of time 
What could make for peace with God? What could bring us into that relationship? What sign could change the heart of a Pharisee? We hear that on the cross, Jesus bore our sins. Again, we can say those and those words can roll off our tongue. But he died, he bore our sins. And we will never fully understand that. But surely it must mean that the judgment we deserved, he bore. And that judgment included relational separation of not being able to hear the Father's voice. Does that follow? If the judgment for not hearing is not hearing and Christ has borne her judgments, what's happened on the cross? As he bore that sin, he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Israel was not the stump forsaken. It had a seed. And that seed bore that forsakenness. And that relationship was not father, father. It was my God, my God. And he bore the judgment and penalty for unbelieving deafness and disobedience. And in that place of not hearing or seeing, the Son of Man experienced the forsakenness that we deserved. Do we hear the love of the Father for the lost? There's no coldness. And we didn't deserve it, and we didn't even ask for that mercy or kindness. We couldn't. We didn't even see or want to hear. So love, even if it is rejected or seems to fail, could never look at other soils that fail to receive the word or come under sovereign judgment with a sense of superiority, entitlement or a matter of fact, that's the way it is. And there's a promise to go out with. The parable in Matthew 13 finishes with a wonderful promise, verse 23. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears, bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. This farmer's son spoke in sowing bags of wheat. We didn't have um, air cedars. We used to lump bags of wheat onto the sower, onto the cedar. And if we got 10 bags per the acre on our property, we were doing really well. Imagine 100 bags per acre, 60 or 30, crops way over the top of the fence. I'm not sure what we were sowing here, but I didn't do the maths of how much we put in and how much we got back. Um, I was distracted by other things. But... The harvest is great. Peter, in the power of the Spirit, preached the gospel at Pentecost. 
to Jews from every nation, reminding them that they, we, crucified the Messiah. And many hearts believed, saying, what must we do to be saved? And about 3,000 souls were added to their number, including Jews. Isn't this a wonderful promise of a harvest, a wonderful harvest? I want to finish today on uh, reading from Revelation, starting verse 9. Let's hear this wonderful promise fulfilled. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. May God... Bless his word to us today.